hello and welcome to this Latrobe Asia webinar, Could Taiwan Be the Next Global Flashpoint? My name is Beck Strading. I'm the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would also like to pay respect to their people both past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians uh, who might be watching this webinar. Now, of course, part of our role at Latrobe Asia is to uh, engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. Uh, in late January of this year, China moved to intensify military activity in the Taiwan Strait sending bombers capable of carrying nuclear weapons and fighter jets into airspace just southwest of the island. Taiwan responded by scrambling fighters and broadcasting warnings. The military activities appear to be the latest in an escalation of tension around the independence of Taiwan, and it coinciding with the inauguration of US President Joe Biden has left many to interpret it as a, the first major test of the new Biden administration's foreign policy in East Asia. So what do these heightened tensions mean for Taiwan's dreams of independence? What are the Chinese Communist Party's objectives for Taiwan? And will the Biden administration stand up to China over Taiwan? And will it look to allies such as Australia for support? So I'm really delighted today to be joined by our expert panel to help unpack these crucial issues. Uh, first, I would like to welcome Jessica Drun, who is a foreign policy analyst and non-resident fellow at the Project 2049 Institute. Welcome, Jess, joining us from Georgia. Our second panellist is Natasha Kassam, and she is the Director of Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program at the Lowy Institute, joining us from Sydney. Hi, Tash. Hey, Beck, thanks for having me. And last but not least, we have Brendan Taylor. He is a Professor of Strategic Studies in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, joining us from the Australian National University in Canberra. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Beck, lovely to be here with everyone. So we will have some time for Q&A in the second half for which we will be using the Q&A function. So feel free throughout the, the webinar uh, to put your questions into that function and I'll get to them uh, in the second half of the, the webinar. Uh, but let's start off with you, Tash. Uh, so as I said in the intro, at the beginning of 2021, there's quite a lot of news and commentary about China's military activities in the Taiwan Strait. So I'm wondering if you can kind of start us off by explaining some of this recent activity. Is it new? Uh, has China intensified this type of activity? And if so, why? And can we interpret the activities as a warning shot to the new Biden administration? Well, that, that's a great question, Beck. Um, as you suggest, China exercising its kind of military capabilities in the Taiwan Strait is not new. You know, this is a long-standing issue and has led to several crises over the past few decades. Having said that, we have seen a real uptick over the past year, but in particular the last six months, um, and where we've seen just increasing numbers of PLA fighters and bombers conducting flights through the strait. There was a particularly worrying incident in September last year when um, actually the Taiwanese Ministry of National Defense publicized that these um, flight paths had been happening. And then they publicized an exchange where apparently the Taiwanese Air Force said, you know, you can't cross the median line in the Taiwan Strait. And the PLA pilot responded, there is no median line. Now, to be clear, this has been de facto, as is the case with much of Taiwan's status, but this idea that China is changing that status quo in the Taiwan Strait, I think is we're seeing that play out through these military activities. We have to remember that these um, military incursions are happening at a time where there's already quite a lot of tension in the area. We all know where US-China relations are at the moment, and there's been criticism in both directions, but at the same time, we've seen that um, perhaps it's becoming clearer in Beijing's mind that Taiwan is 
um, not available to be annexed or unified in the way that they see fit. There's, uh, you know, many more Taiwanese people are identifying as Taiwanese rather than Chinese. The vast majority do not want to be a part of China. So all of those forces, I think, are the context for why we're seeing this escalation. But to your question as to why, right, I think there's quite a few things going on. I would point to four factors in particular. One is that I think the PLA are testing their own capability and their own personnel. We often hear about concerns that they don't necessarily have the same kind of combat experience as other kind of great power militaries. And so I think there's an issue of their own testing and to see what they are capable of. The second is to test Taiwanese capability and response and also to cost the Taiwanese a lot. Every time the Taiwanese have to scramble fighters to respond to one of these incursions, it's a huge cost to the Taiwanese um, budget. The third, I believe, is true. As you said, it is signaling to the United States. China has been particularly concerned over the last, I would say, couple of years, but throughout the Trump administration, that there has been increasing support for Taiwan coming from Washington. We've seen um, you know, several passages of legislation. We've seen high-level visits. All of these things in China's mind are um, reaching the agreements that had been made about Taiwan status. And so this is an attempt to point to the Biden administration and deter them from continuing on that trajectory. I will note uh, that that has possibly not been successful to date, and we've already seen two US um, passages through the Taiwan Strait since Biden took office. And then the last point is perhaps a more speculative one, but I believe that the Taiwanese, sorry, I believe the PLA may be uh, attempting to change the facts on the ground in the Taiwan Strait in the way they've done in the South China Sea, you know, trying to change the ideas of what is considered Taiwan's space and trying to limit um, and isolate Taiwan in that area. So those are my initial thoughts on that question. I might come back to you uh, in a minute, Tash, on the question of what this means for a state, an allied state uh, of the US like Australia. Uh, but I might bring Jess in here because I wanted to get your views on uh, the US position. There seems to be some continuity between Trump and Biden administrations in terms of the kind of the, the overarching narrative of strategic competition. So what do you think are the key features of the US approach to Taiwan? And do you see uh, Biden administration changing how the US deals with the issue of Taiwan compared to previous administrations? Sure. And thank you again for having me. So I think first and foremost, it's always worth stressing that Taiwan has always enjoyed bipartisan support from Washington. And it's because of this bipartisan nature that there's been so much continuity and support for Taiwan um, from the United States, especially from Congress. Um, right now, with heightened tensions, we see a lot more U.S. attention on the region and on cross-strait relations in particular than we have in the past. And this has continued with the Biden administration, um, which has stated its commitment to existing U.S. policy on Taiwan and has reaffirmed that U.S. commitment on Taiwan is rock solid. Um, and has continued to deepen, the Biden administration has continued to deepen ties with Taiwan, much like was pursued under the Trump administration from the past four years. But I think what we're gonna see differently than under Trump is that any progress or advancement in the relationship with Taiwan will come with less fanfare. And personally, I think that's a good call. That way, um, Washington, Washington can focus on substantive development without warranting a Chinese response. Um, we've seen in the past how loud public declarations um, in support of U.S.-Taiwan relations that are oftentimes a lot more symbolic than substantive um, compels China to respond. And more often than not, they choose to punish Taiwan over punishing Washington. Um, another element that I think will be different is that we'll see more coordination with allies on Taiwan and in international organizations to counter Chinese influence. Um, this can open up more avenues for Taiwan and its international space, as well as foster a uh, broader strategic environment for greater coordination on issues related to or of importance to Taiwan. Yes, yeah, so Brendan, I might uh, bring you in here and we will get back to that question of allies as both uh, Jess and Tash uh, alluded to. Uh, but this, uh, I mean, one of the, the key I guess, issues is whether or not this is likely to turn into a great power 
conflict in the region. And your book, um, The Four Flashpoints, which was published by La Trobe University Press in 2019, articulated a hierarchy of hazard uh, in East Asia and suggested that Taiwan is likely to be the most dangerous flashpoint. So uh, in your view, how likely is great power conflict um, in, in terms of the Taiwan issue? Or uh, Tash mentioned uh, the sort of China's tactics in the South China Sea, which are very much sort of defined by the grey zone tactics. Uh, are we more likely to actually just see a continuation of these um, sort of hybrid tactics? Thanks very much, Beck, and, and thanks also for the opportunity to, to appear on this all, all-star panel. I actually feel a bit, bit like the odd one out today, but it's lovely to lovely to be here. Um, I meant the odd one out in terms of being the all-stars, and not, not for any other other reason. But um, <laughs> you're um, a star. But, but you're absolutely you're absolutely right, Beck. Um, you know, the debate is often framed in that way. You know, kind of great power conflict prospects versus a continuation of um, of kind of grey zone tactics, grey zone challenges. Um, you know, on the one side, you see people like, um, you know, Kevin Rudd saying uh, Asia today is, is like Europe on the eve of the, the First World War and that we're, you know, sleepwalking. The major powers are kind of sleepwalking towards a, a big conflict. Um, and then on the other side, you have people like Linda Jakobson from uh, China Matters who, who put out a very good, a very interesting paper recently where she talked about um, that China's tactics are, are more likely to be a kind of all measures short of war, that it's um, that China will try and what it what it calls reunify with with Taiwan um, will try and, and and achieve that um, without actually uh, go, going to to the point of, of major power conflict. Um, my own own view is that the the chances for for conflict um, are, are quite worrying and they're increasing. Um, I think sometimes we're a little bit complacent about the chances for conflict, but I don't see those two views as necessarily being mutually exclusive. Um, I think. It's certainly true to say that, that nobody in the region, even Xi Jinping himself, I don't think anybody wants a, a, a great power war in, in Asia today. I think unlike that case of the First World War, where there was some inkling that, you know, technologies were changing and, you know, it could be a devastating war. I don't think anyone really had a sense of how devastating the First World War was going to be. I think that's very different today. I think everyone has got a pretty clear sense in the world of nuclear weapons how, how devastating a major power conflict in Asia would, would be today. So I, I personally don't buy the argument that, that Xi Jinping has a, a plan sitting in his top drawer to, to take Taiwan this year or even by 2049 on, on you know, militarily. I don't, I don't think that that's part of the agenda unless he's really pushed into a, into a corner. But I think that history does tell us so that, that events can, can spiral out of, out of control, um, even with the best of intentions. And I think that's where the, you know, the, the First World War example, I think, is quite helpful to us, I mean, if you, you look back to that, you know, the causes of the First World War, and there's still a lot of debate about that. There's been what thirty odd thousand books written about about that uh, that topic. Um, but if you look back to that, it, you know, one of the, the the main kind of hypotheses is that it, it was that you know the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand, which essentially was a, a, a grey zone tactic when you when you think about it, kind of reminds us that um, that you know the, these um, operations in the grey zone aren't necessarily all you know something something new. They've actually been around for a while, and that they do have a, a tendency, or they do have potential to to, to spin out of out of control. And I think that's for me where that the World War One historical analogy is, is a useful one. And I think um, you know Natasha is absolutely right. I think some of the the activities that we're seeing, um, you know, with aircraft, for instance, flying into much uh, closer proximity than they have historically. I think there's there's um, you know, a, a danger of, of, a, of an accidental clash. And my worry is that something like that happens at the wrong, just at the wrong time or, or the wrong place. And um, for instance, it was quite a chilling example of this occurred back on the, on the 1st of July of 2016, where there was a Taiwanese destroyer parked in the, the southern port of, of Kaohsiung and, and accidentally due to human error fired off an anti-shipping missile that, that flew over in, in the direction of the, the mainland. Now, what worries me is that what, what would have happened if that incident had happened exactly five years later, kind of in the, you know, on the 1st of July this year and kind of the nationalistically charged atmosphere of, of the, the 100th anniversary celebrations of the, the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, could that event, could that episode have been contained? I, I worry that, um, that we don't have the mechanisms, at least the formal mechanisms. There are, um, there are informal mechanisms in place, particularly between China and Taiwan, but I worry that we don't have the formal crisis management mechanisms um, either between China and Taiwan or indeed between the US and, and China to be able to, to manage a, a really serious crisis um, around this flashpoint. 
I might stick with you for the, the moment, Brendan, because I suspect that one of the issues in terms of whether we're heading to great power conflict is the military balance of power in the region. And it can be a little bit tricky for those outside of strategic and defence circles. I know it's uh, probably a weakness of mine <laughs> is trying to get a handle on the debates about material capability, about relative military power, about the importance of facing uh, and all of these sort of geostrategic considerations that feed into great power competition. So I guess um, sort of zooming out from Taiwan, uh, considering more generally what the balance of power, uh, how it's shifted in Northeast Asia and what implications does that shift then have for Taiwan and its political status? Yeah, I think it's another another great question, Beck. And um, and I mean, you can absolutely be for, forgiven for for not being all that interested in those kind of um, military capability issues. I probably shouldn't say it on a public uh, recording, but it's something that for a number of years I struggled to be interested in it as well. It's not a, not to be honest, it's not exactly often the most exciting um, subject matter for most for most people. But I think it's um, you know, in studying this flashpoint, it's something like in my own case, I've, I've really had to force myself to try and get on on top of that because I think that. It's, it's really critical, I think, to understanding what's happening in this flashpoint today and where I think it's likely to go um, in, in the future. I mean, obviously, there are other, other factors as well that are critically important, those, you know, societal shifts in, um, on, on Taiwan and in, in terms of identity on Taiwan that, that Natasha uh, mentioned. I think, um, you know, often also personalities that, um, you know, right down to the level of the personality and the personality of, of Xi Jinping is obviously very important too. But but for me, I think that that military balance, particularly the military balance between China and Taiwan and the military balance between the US and China, I think that triangular relationship or those kind of two military balances, I think have been really critical to maintaining stability around this flashpoint um, for really for, for decades now. I think even if you go back to, um, you know, re even right up to the middle of the, the 1990s, I think um, Taiwan at that point was still in a position where it could hold its own militarily against um, the mainland, partly because it had been a US ally for much of the Cold War and had access to, to technology from the US, but also because there were, were you know, up until the normalization of US-China relations, there were, there were another 20 countries who were, who were willing to sell weaponry to Taiwan at that point. Um, at that time, uh, China had a very, very large um, army, a very large land force, but very, very weak um, naval and, and air forces. So it wasn't really any match for for the um, for the US or even arguably for Taiwan, at, um, really up until the mid 1990s. Now we began to see that situation change in the middle of the 1990s as China embarked upon its own um, uh, program of, of military modernization that, that I'm sure everyone will be familiar with. I mean, one of the things that I, I often worry about and think about is that that military modernization is, is still only about halfway through. It's still got about another 30 years to um, uh, to, to run. But I think that it's that that program itself has been has really fundamentally shifted the, the military balances um, around this this flashpoint. Um, I mean, I personally think that there's not really any any military balance left to speak of between China and, and Taiwan. Um, you could look back, for instance, to uh, the latest um, defense budget figures that were released only about a week ago by the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and the the increase in, in China's military budget over the past year is 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 the equivalent of the total of, of Taiwan's military budget, just to give you a sense of the, the scale and the, the difference in, in, in size between the two. Um, I don't think China's caught up on, on the US quite yet. I think that there are some areas where, where China is, is catching up. Um, I mean, it's, uh, China now has a larger navy than, than the US. A lot, a lot of its um, uh, vessels are, are becoming more, um, more modern. Um, but I, um, I still think that China still has, has a way to go, although it does have the advantages of, of geography being much closer to, to this um, flashpoint than, than, the, than the US is. But um, I think when we think about the US-China military balance, that the, what matters most um, from my perspective is, is really the types of capabilities that, that China is, is acquiring, the so-called um, A2AD capabilities, area defence, um, area denial Capability. So things like those, um, you know, anti-shipping missiles that have got a much, much larger ranges, things like the DF-21 and the DF-26 that can arguably strike aircraft carriers operating um, near Taiwan or would force the US to operate um, further out. And also the means to be able to target those missiles much more accurately than has been the case in the past. So China's developing much more powerful radars and, and, and sonars and, and satellites to be able to target those, um, those missiles. So unless there's kind of a... a 
you know, some kind of unexpected technological breakthrough. My, my own assessment is, is that um, within the next decade, I think we are going to see a, a situation or quite an important tipping point where the US like seriously does begin to lose the capacity to come to, come to Taiwan's um, defence. And I think that's going to be a, a really interesting point um, in this flashpoint. And it could be potentially be quite a, quite a game changer if those current trends continue. And if they do, um, if my assessment is correct, and they do kind of reach that point where the ability of the US to, to come to Taiwan's defence is no longer part of the equation in the way that it's been uh, for much of the history, or at least the modern history of this flashpoint. Uh, personally, very happy to hear that you have struggled with some of these aspects earlier in your career. Uh, but I think we might turn the conversation back to Taiwan itself. Uh, Jess, you've recently come back or gone back to the US um, from Taiwan. How is Taiwan's government responding to these recent activities? Uh, and on Twitter, you've pointed out that there's not a monolithic view among Taiwanese about um, you know, political status and about what's going on uh, in the more sort of strategic uh, dimension. So I'm hoping that you might be able to help us understand the kind of contemporary contours and the complexities of Taiwanese views on these questions of independence, uh, on and and on the the sort of the regional security order shifts uh, more generally. Sure. Um, so I was not in contact with government representatives, so I don't have the best gauge on government views or perceptions um, of China's increased belligerence. But being on the ground, it seemed that most people were just happy to be able to, you know, live life as normal, um, given how well Taiwan has handled the pandemic, and that. Um, potential outbreaks seem to be more at the forefront of their minds than, say, a Chinese invasion. Um, but I do think it is important to dissect Tony's viewpoints. And on that front, there are two types of um, polls that I think are particularly pertinent to, the dis to this discussion. Um, the first is on Taiwan identity politics, and the second is on preferences on cross-rate futures um, from Taiwan's people. And to me, the two are intrinsically tied because identity politics in Taiwan um, serve as one of the best indicators of Taiwan political preferences and um, policy futures. So um, at risk of oversimplification, the majority of people in Taiwan identify as uniquely Taiwanese. Um, this is as opposed to being both Taiwanese and Chinese or just Chinese. And depending on the poll, if it's um, the recent Pew poll that I think came out last year or the National Changchi University poll, the numbers waver around 66 to 70%. Um, that said, most people in Taiwan would still prefer maintaining the status quo, um, though numbers in support of independence are growing. Uh, but these numbers are against the backdrop of a potential uh, Chinese attack or the unknown of how China would react. Um, for If those polls are um, framed against ideal conditions where China was guaranteed not to attack, the numbers in support of independence are much, much higher. Um, they're around 67%. But that said, these factors do still come into play down the line um, because you're starting to see a convergence of views in Taiwan domestic politics based on these identity trends. Um, again, at risk of oversimplification, both the DPP and KMT policies are starting to center or have, have centered around the Republic of China. Um, the DPP says, you know, Taiwan is already an independent sovereign nation on the ROC and then the KMT's policies through the 1992 consensus is one China respective interpretations with their interpretation being the Republic of China. Um, we're seeing this as a move in the opposite direction on the Chinese side, which is a push against the existence of the ROC. Um, so overall, you're seeing that identity trends in Taiwan are giving shapes to policies that focus more on Taiwan and the ROC is unique from China. And this is further from China's desired direction of closer ties and a so-called shared greater Chinese identity as the path to unification. And this will definitely be something that will play out in um, the KMT chair elections, which are, I think, this July. So we'll see what their cross-strait policy will be and how it's changed and how it's adjusted to these identity trends and then um, Taiwan's local elections, which are coming up in 2022, and then the national elections of 2024. 
I might bring you uh, in here, Tash, as the Director of Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program at Lowy. Of course, foreign policy nerds like me always breathlessly await the uh, Lowy opinion polls when they uh, come out every year. Uh, so uh, you might have some, you might have a comment to make uh, on the question of, of public opinion in Taiwan. But I also wanted to ask you about Australia. Uh, and some of the, the sort of the key questions about Taiwan relate to whether Australia, as a steadfast US ally and a similarly sized democratic country to Taiwan, should, uh, will or is prepared to go to the aid of Taiwan uh, in the event of an attack. This is really, I guess, a question of whether uh, ANZUS could potentially be invoked. I mean, what's your views on the public debate in Australia? Do you, and, and do you think that Australia has a clear policy on what it might do in, in the kind of unlikely event of a major power conflict? And where does it public opinion lie? Sorry, I know I've asked four questions there, but hoping you, you might give us something <laughs> to discuss on those issues. Well, you flooded my poll with such compliments that I have no choice but to do my very best. Um, so, you know, I agree with everything that Jess said. I think those are the key kind of figures on public opinion in Taiwan. I think the only thing I would add is that this kind of increasingly independent sense of Taiwaneseness is often pointed to as a failure of China's prostrate policy and a failure of China to win the hearts and minds in Taiwan. I mean, that's kind of obviously true, but I think you have to um, accept the premise that that's what China is intending to do with its policies. And so I would just briefly say that sometimes I think we focus on China's uh, intentions for Taiwan as being um, to force unification, which is obviously the long-term goal. But in the short term, I think we can think of the more primary goal is to prevent secession, to prevent that formal declaration of independence. And so many of these tactics that um, China employs, I, I think, are in part to kind of scare the Taiwanese from doing that and also to demonstrate domestically to the Chinese public that they hold all the cards. And so I think that distinction is kind of confusing but important unification versus anti-secession. In terms of Australia and our role, uh, I would argue that we are not required to invoke ANZUS and to defend Taiwan by the words of the law. Whether there is kind of an agreed position in a dark room in Canberra somewhere uh, is not something I'm aware of. But I, I do think that Australia would find itself in a really challenging position. We've followed the United States into every major conflict since World War II. Um, you know, the alliance is in a part of the DNA of our foreign policy. Um, so if it came to that, and noting everything that Brendan said about, you know, those possibilities or not impossibilities, if it came to that, you know, I do think that there would be a strong imperative for Australia to be involved in some way. And aside from the military involvement, there would just be so many flow-on effects in the region that would affect Australia if there was, in fact, a conflict there. Public opinion is, you know, of course, my favorite question. And, you know, I think there's a there's a real question as to how much Australians know about Taiwan and how much they understand about Taiwan. Uh, we have a significant Taiwanese diaspora in Australia, but many of them do identify as Chinese and um, come from perhaps a different generation of Taiwanese families. Uh, and then we don't often talk about the conflict in Taiwan. So when, or the potential for conflict in Taiwan. Uh, when we ask Australians about potential threats to our vital interests, only about a third of them say that a conflict between the US and China over Taiwan is a critical threat to our interests. It's right at the bottom of the list, you know, the top being COVID, climate change and economic downturn. So the, the risk level is definitely not seen as a high priority in Australian minds. There's also the question as to whether Australians would be willing to deploy the military in aid of a Taiwan contingency. Um, now, this is really interesting because it's been increasing. So it's coming from a low base, but over time, Australians have been become more invested in the idea of going to Taiwan's defense. It's now 43% say that we should um, deploy our military to support Taiwan. That's higher than what it is in the United States, uh, just slightly. Um, but you know, that is nowhere near the levels of uh, support for deploying our military 
in the event of a genocide or to provide support in the South Pacific um, or even the Middle East. Australian support for deploying military overseas has declined quite a lot over recent years. Um, you know, I think people are quite scarred from the forever wars. But um, yeah, so Taiwan is not that high a priority, but it has been increasing. The last thing I would just say is that um, there's, you know, we've never really understood how to ask questions about Taiwan in Australia. You know, Australians feel warmly towards Taiwan. We have a feelings thermometer where countries are kind of ranked over time. Australians uh, put Taiwan at around the 60 point generally. But last year for the first time, we asked a series of questions about whether Australians thought different places were democracies. And this was designed to contextualize a longstanding issue where Australians don't see Indonesia as a democracy. But what we found was a real distinction, you know, half the majority, I think 52% of Australia said Taiwan was a democracy and only 10% said China was a democracy. So there was a clear separation, at least in understanding those political systems. And so that gives us some insight into what Australians are thinking about when they think about Taiwan. Uh, look, we'll get into Q&A now. I can see that we have some questions already uh, in the Q&A box, but please um, feel free to add some more in. I might direct the first one to Jess. Uh, this is from our, our good friend of Latrobe Asia, Rowan Kelly. Hi, Rowan. Uh, and his question is, what can Taiwan do to establish a true identity as a state and a community respected in its own right, not relegated to being viewed as an issue dominated by its relationship with the PRC and all the United States. Uh, he says that in his experience, uh, most Taiwanese, especially younger people, uh, the PRC relationship is not front of mind or even second of mind. Sure, and thank you for the question. Um, I think Taiwan has already done a lot in terms of establishing, establish, establishing itself as unique from China and not necessarily always within the context of being you know, the counter-China, the anti-China. And I think we saw a lot of this um, in the past year with its COVID response. It really kind of um, established itself as one of the preeminent um, responders to the pandemic and kind of it's it set itself apart from the rest of the world. And it did a lot in terms of its reputation um, with its uh, mass diplomacy and through supporting um, other countries in how to respond to the pandemic as well as Taiwan did. And so on that sense, you, you saw Taiwan stand alone. And I think there's a lot of other um, examples of how Taiwan has done that in the past. Uh, Tash, I might get your views on this question as well. I mean, do you think that there's more that Taiwan can do to establish, you know, a, a, an identity, not just as a de facto state, but as a fully recognised, fully realised state within the international community? And the kind of second part of Rowan's question is really the interesting one is that, um, you know, we, 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 a lot of us do tend to see it as an issue dominated by great power competition. So is there a way of being able to kind of um, look at Taiwan for Taiwan's sake more than just a kind of a, an issue in the context of um, strategic rivalry? Yeah, I think that's a great question and I would agree with everything that Jess said. Um, the kind of potential for Taiwan to establish itself as a state, I think, is really challenging. We saw calls coming out of the United States last year um, from, I think it was from the Council of Foreign Relations, saying that the United States policy towards Taiwan of strategic ambiguity should change to strategic clarity, where they would clearly say that they would defend Taiwan in the case of an invasion. You know, that wasn't received, I would say, particularly well in Taiwan. I think the general sense was as much as increasing support for Taiwan is a good thing and that bipartisan support that Jess spoke about is really important. There's a real concern that um, any, any, any policy measures that made Xi Jinping feel like he was running out of time, that felt like his back was against a wall, would actually provoke that conflict or the kind of missteps that Brendan talked about that could lead, lead to real catastrophe for the Taiwanese people. So I, I think they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place in that situation. You know, there's a lot of people who would like to recognize Taiwan as a state. There's, a, you know, people who would like to do more, but they really do feel constrained by the position that China has taken and the increasingly aggressive moves that we're seeing from China towards Taiwan. 
um, on what Taiwan can, what you know, Taiwan for Taiwan's sake. You know, I couldn't agree with that more. I really would love to see more articles written about Taiwan, not just as caught in the crosshairs between the United States and China. Would love to hear more about you know, Taiwanese art and culture and food and, again, not in that broader context. So I think there are things that can be done in that public diplomacy terms, some of which Jess already talked about, um, that there would be a lot of responsiveness to. Um, there also, I think, could be more done in governments like in Australia where um, to make more of that trade relationship that's actually quite important. And, of course, the role that Taiwan plays in global supply chains and high-tech manufacturing um, you know, Australia should have an FTA with Taiwan, in my opinion. It's, you know, good. It's good for our country. It would be good for our economy. Uh, we've floated it before and then it's gone away. Um, but, you know, there are things like that that can be engaging with Taiwan on its own terms and not just looking at it through those great, that great power competition. Well, I might bring uh, Brendan here as well. Uh, I, we might be able to talk about this now but, or, or later, but one of the interesting areas, of course, in terms of recognition of Taiwan is the South Pacific. Uh, but, Brendan, maybe uh, I'll, I'll just get you to, to comment on, um, you know, this, uh, this question of how Taiwan can become a fully realised sovereign state. Uh, but I'm also going to throw you another question from one of our attendees, uh, which is about the informal mechanisms. So the question to you is, what exactly are the informal mechanisms in place between Taiwan and China that you referenced for preventing an all-out military conflict? And there is another question here that, that relates to that. So I know I'm throwing you a whole package of questions here, but it, it, it is relevant to, to that sort of informal mechanisms because the question is, is there a hotline between Beijing and Washington as in the Cold War um, with uh, the Soviet Union. Thanks, Vic. Um, I'll, I'll try and answer all three of those questions uh, quickly so we can get to the, the others. I mean, on the first of those, um, those points, um, I think I'm, I'm probably a bit more pessimistic than, uh, than Jessica and Natasha are. Um, I think on, in some respects, I think Taiwan has gone a, a long, long way. I, I agree completely with, with um, Jessica and, and Natasha about that in terms of establishing an, an, an identity that's actually kind of, you know, walked up to, to almost to almost formal statehood. And in, and in fact, there are statements that are, that are made by, you know, representatives, leaders of, of Taiwan that, that actually do say that, that um, you know, the Republic of, of, of China is, is an independent, um, you know, state on, on Taiwan. But I think for me, the answer to that, to, to Rowan's, uh, you know, very good question and very important question. Um, unfortunately, I didn't wish, I don't, I don't um, wish this to be the case, but I think the answer for me ultimately lies on, on um, or relies on, on what happens on, on the mainland Itself, I think in in the near term, one of the things that worries me is is where where in fact Beijing's red lines on that question uh, do do lie. I think that's potentially one of the dangers around this flashpoint is that we we don't have a, a really clear sense. Um, I mean, one could could point back to the 2005 anti-secession law that, that Beijing enacted and say, well, that that puts it down in, in black and white. We have a very clear sense from. From that, but I, I think that um, Beijing has been deliberately ambiguous on where its its red lines lie, and I think that that's one of the the destabilising factors around this um, uh, this flashpoint. And in the longer term, for, for Taiwan to become a um, a kind of a, a fully fledged independent state, I, I think we would have to see some you know some really fundamental change happen on on the mainland it, itself. Um, and as far fetched as that might seem now, you know something like like China democratising at some point in in the, in the future. I think that, that that doesn't look like a likely prospect now or, or even into the foreseeable future. Um, but um, that, that's, that would be, you know, my, my response would be a bit more pessimistic to, to Rowan's question. On the um, informal mechanisms, it's a really great question. Um, the honest answer is that, um, that I don't know precisely. It's a question that I've, I've asked over, over many years. Um, and I've, I've asked the question of um, people in the US government, of people in the, the Chinese government, of people in the Taiwanese government. And they've all kind of let me have a little peek behind the curtain and say, well, there are these informal mechanisms, but they haven't gone so far to tell me exactly what they, what they are. I mean, reading the history, I think there's a number of possibilities. Historically, we have seen individuals kind of act as go-betweens across the strait. So they could be particularly, you know, eminent or, or well-regarded individuals that could be playing that role. Um, there's a rather large um, Taiwanese business community, although that business community is, is, is surely shrinking as, as um, Tsai Ing-wen, the leader of um, 
uh, of, of Taiwan creates incentives for, for that um, members of that business community to come back and to diversify elsewhere into uh, to other parts of, um, uh, of of Asia. I think that that's um, there, there could be some mechanism uh, there that um, that that could play uh, that could play a role. Um, but but ov overall, I, I think that um, you know the fact that these mechanisms are, are informal is, is kind of the the, the part that, that worries me because if we look back to past crises. Um, you know, sometimes informal mechanisms, um, back channels can play an incredibly uh, valuable role. Um, you know, for instance, in the in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, we saw we saw a very good example of that. But um, I mean, there are other there's other historical case studies such as the Korean War, where um, where those back channels just have completely failed, um, and messages either didn't get through or were were misinterpreted. So to, to answer the, the third question. Um, I mean, yes, there are there are mechanisms where the, the US and, and China can communicate with with one another. As a, there is a leader to leader hotline. There are some other, um, not many, but there are there are other hotlines um, that are established between uh, the, the US and, um, and 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 China. There's even a, a, a hotline between China and, and Taiwan. One of the big problems um, is that the, the Chinese um, will often just not answer the, the hotline, and that this happened, you know, back in April, 2001 during the the EP3. Crisis when a U.S. Um, uh, reconnaissance plane, surveillance plane, um, collided with a Chinese jet fighter and, and sparked a crisis. Um, it's also happened ever since uh, um, Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration in, in Taiwan as well. So that's one of the really big challenges: is not only to to uh, build up a more robust architecture of these sorts of mechanisms, but also to try and encourage China into that the habits of actually answering those um, and actually using using them as as they have done on on occasion, but not as as frequently as as we would like them to do. Really interesting. It's great to have a hotline, but need to pick up the phone if it's going to be useful. Uh, Jess, I might direct the next question to you. Uh, it seems to be a given that China wants to unite with Taiwan again, but how would you actually describe the current strategic importance of Taiwan for China? And has this changed over the past decade or two? Um, sure, I'll, I'll take a stab at that question. It's not particularly my forte, but I think in China's view, Taiwan represents um, an unresolved issue with the with how the Chinese Civil War played out, and it has stirred nationalist fervor in China. As you know, the Taiwanese are the same as us. We need to bring them back to the motherland. Um, from a geostrategic standpoint, uh, Taiwan falls within the first island chain. Um, so, if China were to take Taiwan, it allows um, the Chinese military to project power from within the first island chain. And I think Brendan probably has more insights to this than I do. Well, I might pass over to Brendan. Did you want to comment on the strategic importance of Taiwan for China and whether that's changed or evolved over time? Yeah, just, just very, very, very quickly. I, I think that, um, you know, many in the audience will be familiar with, with uh, the American General Douglas MacArthur's very famous description of Taiwan as being like an, an unsinkable aircraft carrier. And I think that um, historically, particularly during the Cold War, um, Taiwan was, you know, part of that, that kind of first island chain and could potentially be used to project power against the mainland, you know, keeping in mind that the mainland had, had very, very weak um, air and naval forces at, at that time. I think more recently, we've kind of seen that, um, that argument kind of flipped on its head. And I think increasingly, the worry is that if, if China were to, to be able to gain control of Taiwan, that it would enable it to to project its military power, as, as as Jessica rightly says, you know, further out into the Western Pacific and, and more easily out into the, the the Western Pacific, and it would be harder to kind of hem hem China in within that kind of first island um, island chain. Having said that, I mean, there's there's a lot of um, kind of argument and debate going around at the moment, kind of suggesting that if that if Taiwan is, is lost, that that's kind of the, the whole game is over, that that China automatically becomes the the kind of the hegemon in, in Asia. I mean, I'm I'm not. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I think it, it would be still possible to uh, to maintain a, um, a balance of power in, in Asia, even if um, if Taiwan was was lost. I, I don't think that um, um, I don't think that that's um, you know that would would be the the end game. But certainly, it would make life um, a lot more difficult for, for the US and, and its allies, particularly um, Japan, if if that scenario were to eventuate. 
Yeah, I think it's a real sign of strategic thinking, seeing, uh, you know, a country with, you know, millions of people as an unsinkable aircraft carrier. Uh, it's kind of uh, an unusual way of thinking about Taiwan. But Tash, I might get your response um, to, to this as well. And we have another question. Uh, I think there might be a slight typo in this question. So I apologise to our attendee if I get this wrong. Uh, but it's Natasha, could you reiterate the point uh, regarding China's strategy to intimidate Taiwan from disunification? slash declaring independence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, I think Justin Brendan made really interesting points. Uh, I think all I would add to it in terms of the way in which China sees Taiwan is that Chinese leaders use this concept of rejuvenation, the idea that they're building a strong, stable, wealthy, confident nation. And they use this, I think, narrative to reinforce their own legitimacy. Um, I think maintaining the, the Communist Party's hold on power is the highest priority and the legitimacy is a big part of that. And a part of those narratives, I think, is to suggest that the party is the only, only political entity that can make China whole again and bring it back together again. And that's where you see Taiwan kind of start to become a part of that narrative. Um, and I would say that the things that have been so important to China's legitimacy for the past few decades, or sorry, to the party state's legitimacy, I think that's getting harder. They've been able to rely on this rising tide of development and economic growth and China taking its place in the world. But, but now I think they're running into more obstacles as growth is slowing and demographics are not on their side. And so I think we see increasing reliance on issues and benchmarks like Taiwan and um, to, to boost that legitimacy. So it's, it's a benchmark they've set for themselves is how I would put it. Um, on the, oh, yeah, my point about unification and secession. Uh, so what I was trying to say, and I think I said it very quickly, is that when we think about China's policies towards Taiwan, uh, we often talk about them backfiring because of all the things that just said that there's been um, increasing support for unification, there's increasing sense of Taiwan, sorry, not unification, I'm so sorry, increasing support for independence. Um, there's, a, you know, that increasing sense of Taiwanese identity, fewer and fewer people identifying as Chinese. You know, to if you're looking at China policy, you're saying, oh, well, that's failing, right? People are moving further and further away from China's idea of Taiwan's future. But for that to be true, we have to assume that China's policies are aimed at forcing Taiwan to unify with China. And we know that's the long-term goal. It's written, it's said, it's in law. But I think in the short to medium term, that is a different goal to the idea of preventing Taiwan from declaring independence. And maybe one way to make what I'm saying a little bit clearer is in 2005, China passed an anti-secession law. So the law is to, to essentially punish Taiwan if it declares independence and to maintain the, op the option to use force, but it is anti-secession. It's not for changing the current status quo. It's saying you cannot declare independence. Now, at the end of last year, a Xinhua reporter asked a Dorothy Dixer of China's Taiwan Affairs Office, wondering whether the National People's Congress happening in China right now would consider upgrading or changing that anti-secession law to a unification law. And that would be really, you know, changing that dynamic. Um, we don't know if that's gonna happen, but yeah, I would say to my mind, I still think the short-term goal is preventing independence rather than forcing unification. So perhaps, you know, there's the difference between maintaining the status quo and actively trying to change the situation. Jess, I might, uh, we've got a question here for you. Uh, is it your opinion uh, that the PRC may have been more aggressive towards Taiwan? Sorry, my screen is kind of moving around a little bit. Uh, so let me restart. Is it your opinion that PRC may have been more aggressive towards Taiwan uh, moving forward, uh, sorry, moving towards forced unification over the last year? if COVID had exerted more stress on the country than it did, for example, if the pandemic response had been closer to Western Europe uh, uh, than 
uh, than what it was. So I guess uh, if you could comment on the kind of impact of COVID on the current situation, um, that would be terrific. Sure. Um, I would definitely say that Taiwan's response to COVID has been a factor in China's increased aggression, like one factor of many. But what you see out of China and what it's been doing uh, against the Thai administration and the DPP writ large since they came to power in 2016 was you see a concerted effort to paint the DPP as incompetent as ill-equipped um, to govern. You see that in their disinformation campaigns, you see that in them specifically targeting um, K&T held districts to reward them with economic benefits and to paint um, DPP you know, held districts as like unable to serve the interest of Taiwan's people. Um, but Taiwan's COVID response worked in the complete opposite direction of that. And you saw with public opinion polls um, that Tai's response was very widely accepted by Taiwanese, and she had very high approval ratings for um, the bulk of her, the bulk of the first year of her second term because of how well um, her administration managed COVID. Um, and I do think that, you know, the overall pandemic globally was, um, while the world was distracted, China did use that window of opportunity to pursue actions that were pursuant to its interests. And we see that um, on the Indian border and with its claims in the East and South China Sea. Um, I don't know if I can speak to explicitly what would have happened if Taiwan didn't handle the pandemic well. I think they, I don't know if they would have forced unification, but I think it would have given them um, talking points to say, you know, they definitely, all these, the Taiwanese people need China's guidance. Look how badly they've handled the pandemic. And that would have played into China's propaganda against Taiwan. Brendan, I might, there's, a, there's a couple of questions here about other states and other situations in the region. And I was uh, hoping to sort of bring in, uh, we talked about Australia, uh, but other states like Japan. What's Japan's position on uh, the Taiwan-China relationship? And there's also a question about Hong Kong, linking what's going on uh, in Taiwan with what's going on in Hong Kong. So, uh, I, I mean, broadly, could you kind of comment on the, the position of some of the other key states in the region, but also how this issue is connected in or, or linked in with other flashpoints uh, or points of tension? Yeah, great, great questions, Beck. Um, I mean, the Japan relationship is really, it's a really fascinating um, relationship. Um, I mean, many, many in the audience will, will know that um, Taiwan at one point in its history was, was a colony of Japan from about the late, late 1890s up until the Second World War. Um, and interestingly, um, many on, on Taiwan, um, you know, still have, have fond memories of that, um, of, of that, uh, that period, which may seem a, a little bit um, um, kind of surprising given, given some of the, the, you know, the reputation that, uh, that Japan developed elsewhere um, in Asia during that, um, that kind of dark period of its, its history. Um, but Taiwan did actually develop um, a lot, you know, particularly uh, technologically during that, uh, that, that period um, of, uh, of, of Japanese um, occupation. So there's a, a kind of a historical um, connection and, and it's, um, I mean, there's no formal alliance between uh, Japan and Taiwan, but there is a lot of quiet cooperation that, that goes on um, but between the two. And certainly Japan has a huge stake in, in what, you know, and how this flashpoint plays out, given its proximity, its geographic proximity to Taiwan. If there was a, if there was a major conflict, it would be very, very hard for uh, Japan to, to stay out of it, given, um, you know, the, the substantial numbers of, of US bases, um, and particularly some of the um, the facilities, for instance, the Kadena Air Base um, in Okinawa, where um, the, the US would be um, hoping to, to use um, to, to use that, and it, and it would obviously that the the, uh, the Chinese would be trying to use some of their their you know burgeoning missile capabilities to try and take out those facilities as, as quickly as they, um, they they could. So so Japan would get brought in very very quickly, um, and but I think Japan's involvement would also be critical if if for any if for any reason Japan decided to stay stay out. I think it's unlikely, but if they they did, that could also be a real game changer as well. Not only because of its um, that the US bases um, that are in Japan, but also because of Japan's own formidable military capabilities, particularly its, um, its, its air and naval capabilities and its, um, you know, submarine 
capabilities would bring bring a lot to a, a major power conflict um, over over Taiwan. So um, I think Japan's a really interesting player. I think um, Hong Kong is is really interesting too. There's um, there's always kind of been this, um, or at least in, in recent decades, this kind of very close connection between Hong Kong and Taiwan, and, and kind of what happens in in Hong Kong kind of has a bearing on Taiwan and and uh, and vice versa um, as well. And in fact, that the whole idea of one country, two systems that we we seem to have seen. Um, you know, all but evaporate now in um, in Hong Kong, or at least to become one one country more than more than two systems. I think that was initially developed with with um, Taiwan in, in in mind. I mean, Deng Xiaoping had Taiwan in mind when when that when that idea was formulated back in the 1970s. Um, the Taiwanese didn't didn't really want to have anything to do with it at, at that time. They've never particularly liked it, and I think you can see from from you know some of the recent opinion polls, and I think that um, you know that there's just no appetite for um, for that uh, that um, system in, in Taiwan now, even though C has come out and said that this is China's preferred system for um, for resolving this um, this dispute, um, it was interesting back in that last presidential election that the, the KMT candidate um, Hung Kuo Yu, you know, lost in a in a landslide to to, um, to the incumbent Tsai Ing-wen. Um, even his party, the, the party that supposedly has traditionally had a better relationship with, with China, came out and said it would be over my dead body, you know, when he was on the campaign trail, said it would be over my dead body that um, that one country, two systems is going to come come into place in, um, in, in Taiwan. And we've, we've seen that, the, you know, very, very recently, over, over, over the last 24 hours, the, the current president of the, the KMT, um, uh, chairman of the KMT, come out and, um, and uh, make very similar um, statements. So um, I, I think that, um, that that relationship between Hong Kong Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and what happens in, in one and its impact on the other, I think is, is still a really, uh, a really important one. Uh, Tash, I might get your thoughts on this question as well about how Taiwan, the, the sort of the issue of Taiwan's independence and its strategic significance is linked in with other crucial issues in East Asia. But I do have another question um, from Victor to kind of tack on to the end of that about um, uh, public opinion. Um, they've asked also with 34% of Chinese Australians considering themselves as Chinese exclusively instead of Australian, Australian Chinese or Chinese. Chinese Australian, how is public opinion in Australia likely to play a role in our interaction or support for Taiwan as a democracy? That's a really interesting question. Thanks for that question, which for people who aren't, um, who don't realise, we put out at the Lowy Institute a new report today, uh, polling Chinese Australians on their views about life in Australia, China, foreign influence and um, Australian policy towards China. So separate to Taiwan, I would recommend that you all have a look at that. Um, but somebody points out that uh, a significant percentage of our respondents did identify as only Chinese. I think it's important to note that our respondents were not all Australian citizens. Some were permanent residents and others were long-term visa holders, which is defined in the report. So if you're a long-term visa holder in Australia, I don't think it's that unusual that you would not consider yourself Australian for that purpose. Um, the support for democracy, I think, is another question. And I guess it then becomes uh, a matter for what, if the government is trying to encourage the public to galvanise behind a cause like Taiwan because of a contingency. And again, I'm perhaps not as pessimistic as Brendan about that happening sooner rather than later, um, although still broadly pessimistic. Um, uh, I would say... Um, you know, public opinion becomes very important. You know, it's really, uh, it's a real constraint on public policy, but it's also, uh, you know, it can also empower the government and give them a mandate to move forward in a certain direction. And perhaps, you know, we talked earlier about what Taiwan could do more of and maybe promoting the idea of Taiwan as a democracy, Taiwan as a success story last year. You know, the Taiwanese election last year, which incidentally was the last time I was overseas, um, was, one of those, uh, was one of those times where everybody was so anxious after Brexit, after Trump, that the polls were gonna be wrong yet again. And it's just actually been a real success story for the country in the past year. So perhaps promoting Taiwan as a democracy. And, you know, as we do hear more talk now about about an alliance of democracies or some kind of international foreign policy idea of democracies working together more closely. Maybe Taiwan could be a part of that. Um, just very briefly on Hong Kong, uh, I would say, as Brendan pointed out, that 
um, you know, public opinion in Taiwan in the late 1990s, the early 2000s was very negative towards one country, two systems. It's yet yeah, never been very popular. It became even less popular when Xi Jinping mentioned it in his speech in January 2019. Um, and of course, then what ha has happened to Hong Kong in the intervening two years has provided a really powerful reminder to the Taiwanese of promises that can be made and broken um, to so-called autonomous states. Like I said, they already, I think, were very, very down on it, but it really did, I think, remind a lot of people of the risks well, I think that's all we have time for for today's discussion. Uh, but Diana has helpfully provided a link in the chat to the report that Natasha was talking about. I can't wait to really uh, dig into that report. It was just released this morning and I'm sure it's got um, fascinating insights uh, into public opinion. Uh, but I would like to thank our panellists, Brendan, Jessica and Natasha, for a truly fascinating uh, conversation. It's always good to, uh, to get a panel uh, where people have different ideas, more pessimistic, less pessimistic on these issues, so we can really unpack them. And I think that we had that today. So your perspectives are really welcome. Uh, and I know that I've learned a lot uh, on this issue today. Uh, and thank you to our audience for watching this Latrobe Asia event and for um, providing your really insightful questions. I'm sorry that we weren't able to get to all of them, uh, but the, the fact that, that we did have so many questions, I think demonstrates um, you know, how interested people are uh, in Taiwan uh, and in what's going on in East Asia more generally. So this webinar has been recorded. If you've registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they are ready. Our next webinar uh, for La Trobe Asia is next week and it is on fighting fake news in a time of COVID-19 and this will be brought to you in collaboration with Asia Centre Bangkok. So that's uh, 16th of March at 6pm Melbourne time. Uh, in the meantime, please follow us uh, at La Trobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and La Trobe Asia publications. Thank you very much.